We've been in this series called The Bad Boys of Easter. Now, we'll get to the bad girls one of these days, too, because there's bad girls around. But for now, the bad boys of Easter. And I said in the days preceding the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, three men worked their way into the story of Easter. Each one had the opportunity to see Jesus up close and personal, sometimes in the worst of circumstances. At least the first two guys that we'll talk about saw Jesus perform miracles and fulfill prophecies that would prove he was who he said he was, each one of them should have been able to see clearly that Jesus was the Savior, the Messiah, God in flesh, and yet each refused to abandon his quest for control of his own life and refused to surrender to the Savior of the world. So the question that we have addressed last Sunday, we're going to talk about this Sunday, and then on a, in a smaller, shorter way, Friday night is this, how can we avoid the mistakes that these three, three men made? Because there's a little bit of each of them in all of us. So we're examining these three guys. The first guy we call the boss. We talked about him last week. Today we're going to talk about the banker. Friday night we'll talk about the criminal. But last week we looked at Caiaphas, the boss, the high priest, the religious leader of the Jewish nation, a guy with all the power, all the money, all the influence to do anything he wanted to do. And Caiaphas was the guy who finally got all the other guys together and said, look, there's only one solution to this Jesus problem. We got to kill him. You got to kill him so that the nation can survive. He should have known that Jesus was the promised savior, but the cost of admitting that was too high. It would cost him all that influence, all that money, all that power. And the lesson that I said last week, the lesson that we learned from Caiaphas is this, and I think it's worth repeating, Saying yes to God will cost you something. It always does. Every good thing costs something. It costs God the most. But it costs you something as well. Saying yes to God will cost you something. Saying no will cost you more. Including whatever it is that you choose over God, that's not going to last very long. It will go away. Now today we're going to move on to the banker, the follower of Jesus who kept the money, the bag, uh, the treasurer of the group. We'll find that the banker also thought only of himself and was in fact dishonest and a thief and stole uh, from the group. Now, most of you know who I'm talking about, but before I introduce him, I wanna ask you this question. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? You know what, bargain, you know what I'm talking about? That is, uh, uh, God, if you will do this, I will do that. Every time you do that, most everybody has. Uh, you know, you needed some money or you needed to stay out of trouble or somebody you loved was in trouble and needed a job or a girlfriend or you wanted to get married. It often involves, I'll live a better life, I'll read my Bible more, I'll tithe, I'll go to church, I won't get drunk, you know, I'll quit using those bad words, those kinds of things that we promise God. Uh, but we bargain with him. You know what I'm talking about. When I was in Central Florida, one of my favorite stories. When I was in Central Florida, a uh, young pastor in my 30s, there was this guy that I wanted to talk to and, you know, tell about Jesus. But he was, he's just kind of a bad boy looking guy. You know, he's tough. And, and uh, his wife was a member of our church and his two kids were members uh, of our church. But this guy, he's just a little bit too tough for me to approach. And I'd think about him every once in a while and pray for him once in a while. I think he was a construction worker. I know what his passion was. His passion was... He's a bass fisherman. You know, he fished all the, every weekend he was fished, these big bass tournaments. And, 
And I was thinking about this guy, and I was walking around in the churchyard one day during the week, and uh, here he came down the road. And I thought, what's this guy want now? You know, he's, got his, he's driving his pickup truck, and he's pulling his big bass boat behind it. And circles in the grass parking lot, and he pulls right up so that he's right here looking out the window at me. And I thought, uh-oh, what now? He leaned out, and he said, preacher, can I join your church? I don't, I don't think I'd say anything, but I thought was, why? You know, why would you want to? What, what's going on here? And then he, he told me about it. He said, he said, I was saved a long time ago, um, but I, I, I just haven't been doing the right thing on Sundays. And I promised God, if you will let me win this National Bassmasters Tournament on Lake Okeechobee last weekend, I will quit fishing on Sundays. I won't fish on Sundays anymore. That's my new boat back there that I won. Won the big national, you know, championship uh, on Lake Okeechobee, whatever year that was. Would have been back in the, the 80s, I think, sometime in the, in the early 80s. And then uh, he said, uh, uh, he said, now what, uh, one thing though, he said, now I, I won't be fishing anymore on Sunday, but I might be pulling my boat home you know, early on Sunday morning. Yeah, little, uh, these bargains that we make with God. I might be pulling my boat home, but promise I won't fish uh, anymore. That's a bargain right now. Now, uh, by the way, he and I became great friends. I love that guy. You know, I love the guy. Uh, and and he, he taught me a lot about bass fishing, and, and I forgot a lot about bass fishing, and, and I would always catch fish when I went out fishing with him. And a lot of times, uh, I would preach on Sunday morning when I'd go out, there's a table by the door and there'd be a whole tackle box full of fishing stuff, mostly plastic worms. I still got all that stuff. Haven't used it much in years, but I still got all of that stuff. So I really like that guy. But you know uh, what I'm talking about, that was a bargain that he made with God. Now, I don't know how many times he promised God, if you'll let me win this tournament, uh, I'll, I'll uh, quit fishing on Sundays. And maybe he promised that every year, and then that just happened to be the year he won. I really don't know, but you know what I'm talking about. You've done it, right? You, you, we've all made a bargain with God somewhere. If you will do this, I will do that. Now, there's a couple of problems with bargaining with God. The first is, we really don't have a lot of leverage, not a lot of not much to bargain with, like I'll quit fishing on Sundays. I'll pull my boat. You know, maybe pulling my boat home, but, I, but I'll, I'll quit fishing on Sundays. And the second problem with that is that is our, just our relationship with God. If God doesn't come through for us the way we think he should, then we don't want to have anything to do with God anymore. And that's not much of a basis for a relationship. And that's what happened in the life of today's bad boy of Easter. He tried to get Jesus to do his bidding for about three years. And when Jesus, he finally realized Jesus wouldn't do it, wouldn't do what he wanted Jesus to do, he bailed and he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Of course, you know I'm talking about Judas Iscariot. Now, uh, I put two, two pictures up. You know, we don't have any idea what the guy looked like because there's just dozens and dozens of images and and neither one of those is close, although the one in the upper right-hand corner sort of looks a little bit more mid Middle Eastern. I always pictured him as, as a, he's a little bit more jovial guy. After all, he was trying to reach into your pocket and get, and, and get your money. You know, he wouldn't have been the kind of a mean-looking guy. He'd be the kind of a guy you would trust. Uh, he's the ultimate what's-in-it-for-me character. By the way, there's a lot of people in the Bible named Judas. And so Iscariot probably said something about his hometown, you know, where he came from, Judas 
is scary. Uh, this, uh, this ultimate, what in, what's in it for me guy? He's a pretender. He's a traitor. He's the group bank. Let me read you one verse of scripture that we'll get back to, look to a little bit later that says something about him. In John's gospel, chapter 12 and verse 6, John, who knows him, said this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Now, John didn't know it at the time, but later he realized he was a thief a, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You know, so yeah, this, this is for the poor. This is for the poor. You know, put the money in the bag. It's for the poor. And then he'd get him a little something, something on the side. When there was something in it for him to follow Jesus, he followed. And when it became apparent there was more to be gained siding with others against Jesus, he went over to the other side. And that's important because there's a little bit of Judas in each one of us. Judas's story is relevant because there's something in all of us that wants to leverage God and God's power for our ends. After all, if you can't use that power, you know, for your own good, what, what good is it? And when he's no longer willing to do what we want him to do, then we put him up on the shelf. So this is the first thing I want you to notice about Judas. For Judas, Jesus was always a means to an end, his end, that is Judas's end, not God's end. But as Judas learned, God doesn't bargain. He can't be suckered into our schemes. We have no bargaining power. We have nothing he needs. Now he wants us. He loves us. He wants us. But we have nothing that he needs. And Judas isn't alone in this. We're all a little bit that way. And by the way, you know, those 12 guys that originally uh, assembled with Jesus, we call them the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. And Judas was one of them. The other 11 guys were the same way. Uh, all, all of them were the same. Uh, Jesus was a means to an end for each one of them. Remember, they used to argue over who's going to be the greatest when this kingdom comes into play. Perhaps the most obvious illustration of their struggles can be found in, a, in connection with an encounter Jesus had with this really rich guy. We talked about this before. You're familiar with the story. You can find it in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's story of Jesus, Jesus, Mark's story of Jesus, and Luke's record of Jesus. But there was this wealthy guy who came up to Jesus one time and he said, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus always knew how to cut to the heart of an issue. You know, we, we just dance around it. I'm, I'm really good at just dancing around things and not getting to the heart. Jesus knew how to get to the heart of an issue. So he said, well, you know, just keep all the commandments. Honor your mother and your father. Don't lie. Don't steal. Uh, those, those kinds of things. And the, the, the guy says, well, yeah, I, I've done all that ever since I was a little kid. He said, I, I've kept it one perfectly. Now, nobody has. The guy was lying. Breaking one of the commandments, right? He was lying. Nobody does that. So Jesus said, well, okay. All right, he didn't call him a liar. He said, okay. He said, just one more thing. And you know what it is. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Now, does, does God require everybody to you know, go to heaven to do that? No, no, he doesn't. But he's just illustrating a point here that, that you really aren't the guy. You really aren't as good as you think you are. And scripture says the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus turned to his followers, the 12 guys and others, and he said, look, it's really hard for a rich person to go to heaven or to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, because rich people tend to trust money rather than trusting God. People with a lot of stuff have a lot to lose. 
And here's how, the, here's how the followers of Jesus reacted to that, Matthew 19, 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they asked, who then can be saved? You know, because the idea was, hey, you keep the rules, God blesses you. You keep the rules, you got all the money you need. You keep the rules, you're healthy. You keep the rules, your kids do well. That was the way it was. You keep the rules. And so if a guy had a lot of money, he must be because he was keeping all the rules and doing the right thing. And Jesus said, no, it's harder, harder for a wealthy person uh, to go to heaven because he trusts in something other than God. And then Peter said something that's very revealing uh, that, and they were all probably thinking it, but Peter's the one, you know, he's the mouthpiece. He said this in verse 27, Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you. You know, hey, uh, a lot of them were married. Peter had a mother-in-law, so I'm assuming he had a wife. We have families, you know, we have kids and all this kind of stuff. But we've, and it's not that they got divorced or anything, but they were gone a lot. And they left their business behind. We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us, right? In other words, okay, we're following you, Jesus. Now what's in it for me? What am I gonna get out of this? And Jesus did. Uh, give them some answers to that, by the way. You can read it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. But that's, that's the question we ask. What's in it for me here, Jesus? What's in it for me? I, I give up my time, you know. I go to church on Sunday morning. At least you're here today, right? Uh, and I give some of my money, and uh, I don't use those bad words, you know, like I, well, not much, you know, like I used, used to do. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a better person. And, and so what's in it for me? And that was the same question that Judas asked constantly because for Judas, Jesus was always a means to an end. And it was his end. In other words, I got some stuff I want to accomplish here. What's in it for me? And by the way, when you get close to the end of Jesus's ministry and he gets arrested, what happened to those 12 guys? They all ran for the hills, didn't they? They all gave up because they were expecting the Jewish Messiah to come and set up the Jewish kingdom. Uh, Old Testament prophecy was clear about the coming king from the lineage of David. And Jesus met all those requirements. What they missed was the fact that Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom and the physical kingdom is coming, but it's still future. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about being the Messiah, but he just didn't hate Romans like he should, according to their understanding. As we saw last week, uh, he didn't get along with the religious leaders. He called them snakes and stuff like that. And instead of hating Romans and organizing an army and building a war chest, he preached peace and paid taxes. They didn't like either one of those things. And Ju Judas, for three years, he was biding his time, waiting for Jesus to throw off that cloak of peace and put on a warrior's ar uh, armor and lead him into battle and set up the new kingdom. The other, he would, he maybe he could be secretary of the treasury, you know. Uh, and remember James and John went to Jesus one time. They said, well, in your kingdom, now, how about one of us sits on the right, one of us sits on the left. In other words, give us a couple of, we'd like to be cabinet members or vice president or something of that nature uh, as well. Then, so that was what they were all looking for. They talked about it all the time. And then something happened. That was the final straw for Judas. Something happened, and Judas just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, it's about the same time, remember we talked last week about Caiaphas and how they were all trying to trick Jesus and so forth, and then something happened 
And Caiaphas says, that's it. We got to kill the guy. That's the only answer. We got to kill the guy. Well, something happened that, that Judas said, okay, that's it. It's all over with for me. It was an extraordinary act of kindness that pushed him over the edge. Now, second thing I want you to notice about Judas is this. When Judas finally realized that Jesus was not going to cooperate, that is when he finally realized this is not going my way, he is not going to set up a kingdom, I'm not going to be able to be secretary of the treasury. When Judas finally realized that, he went over to the dark side. After three years of following Jesus, he flipped and went over to the other side. The event that reveals Judas's heart recorded in the Gospels, Matthew and John in particular. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, he starts talking about how it's the week uh, you know, of the Passover, which is when Jesus was betrayed and, and, and when he was crucified. And, and Matthew mentions how the high priest Caiaphas, last week's bad boy, and the Jewish leaders were looking for a way that they could get Jesus away from the crowd and arrest him, turn the crowd against him, and then kill him. And so <clears throat> this actually happened, by the way, they're in the village of Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. It's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus, you know, the two sisters and the brother live. Uh, John says it happened six days before the Passover. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 6, puts it like this. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. Now, we don't know exactly who Simon was. A lot of Simons in the Bible. This is guy's called Simon the leper. And here's what happened. Verse 7, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very exp expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now remember, uh, they didn't sit in chairs around a table. They reclined on pillows around a very low table. So he's just kind of reclining over. It wasn't too hard for him to get through his head, and she poured it uh, on his head. You remember that story? You've heard the story of Jesus in the alabaster box? You know, you can shake your head or raise your hand or something. Yeah, okay, you remember that. Uh, well, and by the way, in John's account, he makes it clear that the woman was Mary, Mary and Martha, uh, and that the dinner was in Jesus's honor, that Lazarus was present at the dinner, and Martha cooked. You know, so they're the whole group. The man's all together right here at this particular din dinner. We don't know a lot. Uh, we know that perfume in that alabaster jar uh, was very expensive. But we don't need to talk about it a lot, but it can only be used once. They didn't have lids, you know, screw on lids like we have. So it was a sealed uh, top on this thing. When you got ready to use this stuff, you broke the top and you poured it out and it smelled really good. And that was it. It was all over with and it cost a whole lot of money. It could only be used once. And so she came and she broke this jar and she poured it on Jesus and, and it must have filled the whole house and maybe wafted out into the street. Smells so good. And here's what happened, verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They're like, oh, we're indignant. That means they were angry about a wrong that had been done. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. In a moment, we're going to find out that Judas is the one that said that. And the other 11 guys just, yeah, that's right. We're, they just kind of went along with it. Verse 9. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. How? How righteous, how holy of them to think about that. Verse 11, aware of this. Now, Jesus is always aware, right? He knows what's going on. All through, all through Scripture, we have, we knew, he knows what somebody's thinking. He knows what they're whispering about. 
behind his back. So aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing. Why are you bothering her? Hey, the perfume belonged to her. She could do whatever she wanted to do with it. And she did what she thought was the best thing. And here's another thing. She's done a beautiful thing for me. What do you mean, a beautiful thing for me? Well, verse, uh, verse 11, he says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, by the way, Jesus is not slighting the poor here. He may actually be referring to Deuteronomy chapter 15, which says, there will always be poor people in the land, therefore I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So he may say, look, you need to always, yeah, take care of the poor. But the focus of this is not the poor. The focus of this is you will not always have me. What are you talking about, Jesus? Verse 12, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. What? What are you talking about here, Jesus? Prepare me, prepare you for burial. Now you're wasting money that could have gone into the ministry, pouring it out, and now you're talking about dying? Messiah doesn't die. Messiah is a king. Messiah gets rid of the Romans. Messiah sets up a kingdom. The prophets prophesied it. We've waited for it. We cast our lot with you. We've given up everything for you. If you die, what's going to happen to us? You know, that's the question. What, what about me? What's going to happen to me if you die? And then Jesus continues and he makes an amazing statement, uh, a prophetic statement. Verse 13, he says, truly, I tell you this, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, that word gospel means good news and it specifically uh, refers to the 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 coming, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus to pay the price of our sins and to give us the gift of eternal life. And he's saying this gospel is going to be preached all over the world. Are you kidding me? This, this little, these few guys in this little room and this little dinner that's going on here. Wow, what a great prophecy. And, and this kind of stuff all through scripture where, where Jesus says, yeah, one of these days, all over the world, all kinds of languages, all sorts of people, all cultures. This gospel is going to be preached. And he says, what she has done, what this woman has done, will also be told in memory of her. I asked you a while ago, how many of you heard this story before? Most of you had, right? <laughs> and if you hadn't heard it before, you've heard it now, right? All over the world, all kinds of languages. The gospel is preached, and this woman who did this thing, broke that bottle, that story is still being told. He was telling these 12 guys that one day this is going to be preached all over the world. By the way, this might be a good time to break from Matthew and go to John for a minute because he, uh, he gives us a little bit more insight into the character of Judas Iscariot. I read it to you a while ago. I want to do it again. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 4, but one of the disciples, same dinner, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, that is, to the breaking of the bottle. He says in verse 5, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Verse 6, the verse we read a little earlier, he did not say this, John said, because he cared about the poor. He wasn't really thinking about the poor. It was just a smokescreen. But because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself. 
to what he put into it. Don't you love that? He used to just reach in there, need a little something, he's a reach in the bag, get some money out for himself. He didn't care about the poor. The perfume and the alabaster box seemed to have sealed the deal for Judas. He decided at that moment, as we're going to get back to Matthew and read about, he decided at that moment that he had invested enough in Jesus, that Jesus was not going to do what he expected him to do. And he thought, if you're going to waste money, if you're going to talk about this gospel being preached all over the world, if you're not going to establish a, an earthly kingdom where I can be secretary of the treasury, I can't trust you anymore. You're not doing the right thing. I can't follow you anymore. I'm going to cut my losses and move on. So back to Matthew, taken right at the next verse, Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. It's only a mile and a half, you know. They're in Bethany, go into town. Downtown Jerusalem, mile and a half away. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and, verse 15, asked, what are you willing to give me? What are you willing? I got from him. Now, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you. So they counted out to him, everybody knows what they counted out, right? 30 pieces of silver. Judas went immediately to those who desired to kill Jesus and asked the question. He said, look, I've wasted a lot of time and a lot of money on this Jesus guy. What can I get out of you? 30 pieces of silver. Uh, I don't know how much that was worth. I think if you look under the law of Moses, it was the reimbursement plot price. Like if you had a slave and somebody accidentally killed your slave, they had to pay you 30 pieces of silver. Not much in exchange for his relationship with Jesus, but it seemed like a thing to do at the time. And so verse 16 says, from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. He needed to find a place, a time when Jesus was vulnerable when he was alone, when he was away from the crowd uh, so that they could feel comfortable arresting him. And here's what happened. So he's looking for this opportunity to betray Jesus. And it's just a few days before Passover. And when Passover, they're getting ready for Passover on Passover day, the last Passover they would celebrate, by the way. On the afternoon before Passover, Jesus sent some of his guys into town and they found this upstairs room that evening, they all went into the upstairs room. They got ready to eat the Passover meal together. And uh, uh, before they did, Jesus took off his rabbi robe, the robe that identified him as the leader, and he tied a towel around him. He washed everybody's feet, you know, because nobody else was willing to do that. You did that because, remember, you're reclining uh, at these couches, uh, these tables to eat and your feet was in somebody else's face and you'd been walking around in dirty streets with sandals and all that kind of stuff, but he washed their feet and then he put his robe back on. He said, now you guys do go and do the same thing I did. You go and you serve other people. Now, perhaps during that time, somewhere along the line, early in the meal, uh, they decided that after the Passover was over with, they were gonna go out of the city to this olive vineyard called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there they were gonna spend some time. And Judas thought, aha, that's where I'm gonna get him. That's where he's gonna be alone. But hey, I'm stuck in this room with these 12 other guys here, including Jesus. So how am I gonna get out of the room? So he's thinking, how am I gonna get out of the room? How am I gonna get out of the room? How can I get to the, uh, these, the Jewish guys and tell them what's going on? And then during the meal, 
during the Passover meal, before the Lord's Supper was instituted, Jesus made this ominous statement, John 13, 21. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is gonna betray me. Ah, can you imagine you get how Judas felt? He knows, he knows, <laughs> he knows what's going on. And everybody else is going, oh, what's going on? What's going on? And Judas knew exactly what's going on. But then Jesus always knew what was going on. He even knew what people were thinking. So the Passover meal continues and Judas is on edge and he's wondering what's going to happen next. If Jesus points me out, everybody's going to turn against me. We're going to have a real problem here. What's Jesus going to do? And then during the meal, verse 27, John 13, 27, as soon as G Judas took bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do it quickly. He leaned over and he said, in essence, I'm not going to stop you. Go ahead. I'm, you go with my, you know, I, I'm releasing you. You go do whatever it is you're going to do. Verse 28 says, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. They just thought Jesus had some kind of business to take care of. He had the money bag. Maybe you need to go feed some poor people or something of that nature. And after Judas left, Jesus instituted that new meal that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And then he said something very revealing. After Judas had left, John 13, 31, same passage of scripture, when he, that is Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. In other words, everything is working out exactly the way that we plan for it to work out. A reminder to us that God's hand cannot be forced and God's will cannot be thwarted. We can do whatever we wanna do, but God's still gonna do what he is going to do. So Judas went to the Jewish leaders and he betrayed Jesus. We don't know what was going on in his mind. We didn't know what he thought was going to happen, but I think the last thing on his mind was that Jesus was gonna die. I don't think he thought there was a chance that was gonna happen because the Jews didn't have the authority to execute anybody. They could do a lot of other stuff, but they couldn't execute anybody. So he evidently didn't realize what might possibly happen. But when things didn't go as planned, notice Matthew 27. Now we move a couple of chapters in, in, in verse three. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, they sent him to Pilate. Pilate said, go ahead and crucify him. When Judas realized what was actually gonna happen, he was seized with remorse and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. What seemed so important to him, what seemed like he couldn't give up just a minute ago was completely meaningless at this point. Have you ever had buyer's remorse? I'm talking about buyer's remorse. You bought something and you, and you, and you got over and you thought, oh no, oh no, what was I thinking? See, I, I can think of a special thing. I could say December the 22nd, 1984, and my whole family would know the buyer's remorse that I suffered on that day. I'm not going to say what it is, but I'll be glad to tell you some other time. You know, December the 22nd, 1984, how can you remember that? I remember. I remember the worst case of buyer's remorse I have ever had in my life, and I hope I never have that kind of buyer's remorse again. That's why Judas felt. What, what Judas sacrificed for his relationship with Christ one minute was something he'd wished he'd never done the next. And what we trade our relationship for Jesus never lasts. What we, we have, oh, I gotta hang on to this, Jesus has gotta go. 
doesn't last. I don't care what it is. It does not last. Uh, we read uh, Matthew 27, 3, verse 4. So he's brought the money back, and, and he says, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And notice they said, what's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. Or literally, that's for you to take care of. What is that to us? That's on you. That's on you. We don't care what you do, but that's on you. So verse five, Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Now I've heard the expression, Judas gained 30 pieces of silver and lost his soul, but he didn't even gain 30 pieces of silver. He gave that back because he realized it was meaningless. No matter what we trade for our relationship with Jesus, ultimately it's gone. Only our relationship with Jesus lasts. I see people all too regularly who think they have a better alternative, but they always regret it in the end. So here's a couple of five or six closing thoughts. When we barter, that is, if you'll do this, I'll do that, rather than surrender, we, like Judas, are responsible for the outcome of our journey. Then we, oh, 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 that, that's on you. Just like, just like the, the Jewish leader said to Judas, that one's on you. God probably won't get in the way of you having your way. He won't rob you of making your choice. And neither will he rob you of the responsibility from your decision. When Jesus, Judas couldn't get Jesus to do his bidding, he traded his relationship with Christ for 30 pieces of silver. I don't know how valuable that was couldn't come close to the relationship he had with Jesus. And when you opt for your way over your relationship with Jesus, you do the same. And like Judas, once you get what you want, it immediately starts losing value and it becomes nothing. Bartering seems easier and it seems more natural. You do this and I'll do that than surrendering. But remember this, a couple thoughts. When you barter, when you surrender, Excuse me, let's go back to when you barter. When you barter rather than surrender, you are responsible for the outcome of your journey. You take on the responsibility. But the next, next thought is this, when you surrender, when you just say, okay, God, sure, I don't understand everything, but when you surrender, God takes responsibility for the outcome of the journey. And he said, I got it. I got it. I'm with you. At some point, each one of us is tempted to trade our relationship with Christ for something else or somebody else, usually because of disappointment in our lives, uh, caused by wrong expectations. What are you most tempted to trade Jesus for? Think about it. What are you most tempted to trade Jesus away for? What have you decided is more important than your relationship with Christ. Another relationship, acceptance, control, what is it? Last thing on the screen is this today. Anything you trade for Jesus is a bad trade. I don't care what it is, it's a bad trade. Remember one time I traded away a Duke Snyder baseball card in the 50s for somebody that nobody heard of because I didn't know that Duke Snyder was a star. I was like, if I'd had that baseball card today, man, be worth something, right? Bad trade. We've all bad trades. Anything you trade Jesus away for is a bad trade. That's the lesson we learned from the life of Judas. 
today's bad boy of Easter. Caiaphas, and then there's Judas. Anything you trade Jesus away for, that's a bad deal on your part. It brings responsibility on you, and you lose the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we're all tempted to barter. Not, not only tempted, we do it. We do it. But there's never any lasting fulfillment in that. We, we realize quickly the mistakes that we make. I know you'll always accept us back. Grant us your grace today. Grant us the wisdom to follow you. To learn as we approach Good Friday and as we approach Easter Sunday, we trust in you.